0: pepperidge farm milano
1: how do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to ready or not maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship just starting or just starting over on the road to somewhere we talk about all of it getting really honest and we definitely laugh our way through it that's the beauty of this journey I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts,
2: or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. HowStuffWorks.com
1: To the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, we have
0: not had a Mad Royal episode in a little bit.
1: We have not. So uh, we're kinda
0: new. Uh,
1: this kind of a theme, though.
0: Yeah, we have a lot of them and people love them. Uh, but we haven't done one in a bit, so it seemed like time to circle back on the Mad Royals. Uh, this one, like all of those stories, is really sad in that it features a person who is never really properly treated for their illness. Although there was a lot of theorizing and attempts at treating it, uh, but it's also smack dab in the middle of the Hundred Years War between England and France, which ran from 1337 to 1453. You'll find some accounts that, that want to shift those numbers a little bit, but that's sort of the agreed upon, uh, general. Range, which yes, is more than a hundred years. Uh, and we're talking today about Charles VI of France and his reign because of its position on the timeline of Europe had ripple effects throughout the histories of both those countries. And, uh, this stuff is really convoluted. There is so much intrigue and loyalty gaming and power grabbing. And to make matters worse, there are a lot of repeating names. Uh, so hopefully I have managed to pare it down in a way that makes sense. But uh, yeah, we were going to talk about Charles VI of France, who was also known as the Mad King.
1: Yeah, if you looked at your at the title of this in your podcast player and said, didn't they do this one already? That uh, was Charles IX. Yeah. A lot of Charleses, obviously, Whole, if we got il, all the way il be, to nine.
0: Il y a beaucoup de Charles. <laughs>
1: So this particular Charles was born on December 3rd, 1368 in Paris. His parents were King Charles V and Jean de Bourbon. When he was only 11, Charles became king. He was crowned on October 25th, 1380.
0: And initially, it really seemed like Charles was a golden child. He was very bright, he was charming, he was handsome, and he was athletically skilled. So the country and the court of France really believed that he was going to grow into a fine king.
1: Because he was so young when he inherited the throne, though, his uncles served as his aides and advisors. These included the Dukes of Burgundy, Bourbon, Anjou, and Berry. They also created an advisory council to guide the young Charles called the Council of Twelve. Philip the Bold of Burgundy was selected to lead this cabinet. This was not to be confused with the King of France, also called Philip the Bold. That was Philip the Third, and he had reigned from 1270 to 1285. So this is roughly a century later.
0: Yes. Again, so many. And they, they reuse not only names like Philip and Charles, but nicknames. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes it really confusing. Uh, but while France was, in effect, being ruled by Charles's duke uncles, a number of actions were taken that were not so much in the interest of the people as they were to benefit those royals. Uh, England and France, as we mentioned, were deep into the Hundred Years' War at this point. It had been going on since 1337, and it had really been a very expensive effort for France.
1: So the Dukes raised taxes, uh, but a lot of what they were trying to do was replace reallocated treasury funds that they had actually spent to benefit themselves. So just two years after Charles VI was named king, revolts started breaking out throughout the country as France's people grew very frustrated with things that were being done in the young king's name.
0: Yeah, one account I read suggested that all of those Dukes Kind of each had their own agenda, and so they were spending money not as a unified force, but they were each just going, well, I'm going to take some money to go do my thing over here. I'm going to take money to go do my thing over here. And so they were really just part of the problem was not only that they were benefiting themselves, but they were doing their own projects and kind of funding them willy-nilly. In 1385, at the age of 17, Charles was married to Isabeau of Bavaria, and that was a union which had been brokered by Philip the Bold. This was a move that benefited Philip, who had inherited the Countship of Flanders in 1384. And at the time, England was exerting its power in Flanders, so Philip arranged the marriage in part to ensure that he had German support there.
1: Even though... It was arranged, this marriage was definitely not something Charles had been forced into. Despite the fact that he didn't speak German and Isabeau didn't speak French, the young king was instantly smitten when he saw his Bavarian princess, so much so that the young man insisted that the wedding happen as quickly as possible. Three days after they met, the young couple were already husband and wife.
0: And the marriage initially, anyway, went well. Uh, the young couple became known for their entertaining. They were both very attractive and charming. So even if they had not been royalty in those first years, at least, they probably would have been 14th century Europe's version of an it couple.
1: In August 1388, at Philip's urging, Charles backed Jean of Brabant in a disagreement with Duke William of Gelderland. Jean of Brabant was related to Philip the Bold by marriage. She was his wife's aunt. So he was using his position and his influence over the king to try to smooth things out for his family. But once Charles arrived on the scene, what he actually did was to make peace with Duke William. And that was the end of things. It was not the show of force that Philip and Jean had been hoping for.
0: Yeah, I don't think they wanted negotiations at all. (laughs) They wanted somebody to come in. Crack some skulls and show who was who. And instead it was like, hey, we can work this out, you guys. Uh Just a few months after this, Charles, who was 21 at that point, decided that he was ready to govern on his own. So with the help of Louis, the Duke of Orleans, who was his brother, he made the move to dissolve the Council of Twelve. And so his uncles were also removed from their advisory positions. Charles's father, Charles V, had had an advisory cabinet called the Marmosets, and when Charles took over his reign, he reinstated the Marmosets, which included non-aristocrats as his advisors.
1: Charles sought reform once he started ruling on his own. With the Marmosets in place to advise, Charles began repairing the damage that his uncles had been doing. Slowly, the French economy improved, and the corruption of the royals and their government was reduced and this is when the nickname Charles the Beloved came to be associated with the king.
0: Yeah, initially it looked like everything was going so great. Uh, in 1389, Charles made a move that was intended to bring greater power to France by placing an ally on the papal throne. And this is one of those points in history where there were several contenders for Pope, and Charles aligned with anti Pope Clement VII. Charles knew that if he could convince Clement VII that he should make a strong move to take the role of pope, and if he assisted, then France would have this really strong ally in Rome.
1: But not everyone wanted the same pope. King Richard II of England wished for Boniface IX to become the pope, when word of Charles's plan to install Clement VII as Pope reached England, it led to the two monarchs meeting to discuss this issue as well as their country's ongoing antagonism.
0: And Charles managed uh, with Richard II to come to a temporary peaceful agreement. And that was the truce of Lulingham, which put an end to the second segment of fighting between the two countries in the course of the Hundred Years' War. And it actually also led to the longest period of peace within the Hundred Years' War.
1: The treaty also included an arrangement made several years later for Richard II to marry Charles and Isabeau's daughter Isabella. Isabella was six when the treaty was signed.
0: And that marriage did happen then. Um, so we're going to do a really brief sidebar here on gross child marriages. Um, Richard II and Isabella were married before the girl's seventh birthday, although according to the custom of the time and canon law, marriage to a child in such an instance was seen as political. Such marriages were not consummated until the child involved was a more appropriate age. Um, but in terms of what that means for girls, that was commonly 12 years old, which is still troubling, uh, but at that time was pretty standard. But in Isabella's case, her husband, Richard II, died when she was only 10. So the marriage was never consummated. And most accounts suggest that he really did treat her kindly. He wanted to protect her and he felt like, that's fine, we can make this political alliance and I will wait to make her my wife in actuality. Um but he died before any of that came to fruition. So because they had not consummated the marriage, she was not considered a queen dowager. And initially it was a little bit tricky to get her moved back to France. Uh There was a lot of political maneuvering going on and an attempt to remarry her to the young Henry V. Uh, but she was eventually returned to her parents in France.
1: So we're about to get into the first time that Charles exhibited some truly bizarre and upsetting behavior. But before we do that, we'll get to a word from one of our sponsors. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah,
0: I am wildly excited. And uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm. And it's not a calm situation at all.
0: The first instance of Charles having medical issues, which would be associated with his madness, was in 1392. And he had, in April of that year, been quite ill and had lost uh, most of his hair and his fingernails to that illness, which remains unidentified.
1: While he was recovering from that illness, Charles learned that one of his friends had been the target of a failed murder attempt. So in August, Charles began a journey to try to seek vengeance on this attempted murderer who had fled to Brittany. While he was riding to his destination, Charles developed a high fever and also out of nowhere stabbed four of his men with a sword. He was overpowered and laid out on the ground and he started having some kind of convulsions and then fell into a coma like state.
0: Yeah, he actually may have stabbed more than that, but he definitely killed four of his men. Um, there's also a, a weird little part of that story where a, a stranger, a seemingly very distraught possibly wild man runs up and and yells some things right before this all happens it's a very weird scene that happened and apparently like uh, a, a lance was dropped and that may have triggered it we basically do not know why he went on this bizarre killing spree but after several days of being unconscious the young king awoke and he was treated by a doctor And he was completely heartbroken when he learned that he had killed four members of his party. He had also uh, injured his brother Louis in the process. And this was, unfortunately, the start of a cycle that would play out over and over throughout the king's life, where he would have these bouts of madness, followed by a period of apparent normalcy.
1: About five months later, on January 28, 1393, the king was in a serious accident at a masked ball that was thrown by Queen Isabeau. He and several other men had been dressed as uh, so-called wild men, and their linen costumes caught fire when they came in contact with a torch that was being carried by the king's brother, Louis, who got too close while trying to identify who the masqueraders were. Thinking very quickly, the Duchess of Berry used her skirts to smother the flames that were engulfing the king, but four of his courtiers burned to death in the incident, this incident came to be known by the grisly name Bal des Ardents, or the Ball of the Burning Men. I had thought about doing a whole episode on this at some point, but like what we just said, is most of the information about it. It was a grisly and horrifying spectacle.
0: Yeah, there are some pieces that have a, a hair more detail that, as part of their costumes, that were linen. They had soaked them in some sort of. um formula that allowed them to like stick hair to them so that they would look more wild and that that was super flammable. But most of them really all kind of center around really making it clear that this was not anything but an accident. Louis really was just trying to figure out who these people were. He was not trying to attack them with this, this uh, torch. And at this point, Charles was still grappling with his guilt over the August incident in the forest, and this accident only made him more deeply upset. And several months later, he experienced another attack that was very similar to the first one. And this time, a surgeon intervened and trepanned the king's skull to relieve pressure on Charles's brain. And that, Procedure actually seemed, at least according to record, to work for a while. He felt better and he did not have another episode until 1395.
1: But as time progressed, this cycle between periods of lucidity and periods of psychosis became shorter and shorter to the point that he would experience a bout of madness lasting anywhere from three to nine months, followed by a lucid period that would last three to five months.
0: And There were many theories as to what was going on with the king, and one of them started circulating that he might be possessed or cursed in some way. So church officials attempted exorcism on several occasions. And during one such attempt, Charles called out, begging that if someone present had been part of the curse, that they should just let him die rather than let him continue to suffer.
1: These episodes began to manifest with serious breaks from reality, and his delusions weren't really consistent from one episode to another. He claimed at various points that he was not the king, that he was being chased through the palace, and that his wife and children were not, in fact, his family. He attacked physicians and servants and destroyed his apartment.
0: And at one point, he also exhibited a version of the glass delusion that we spoke about in our podcast episode covering Alexandra of Bavaria. Unlike Alexandra, who thought she had swallowed a glass piano, Charles believed that he was made of glass, and so he demanded that iron rods and sometimes uh, wooden planks be placed in his clothing to protect him from shattering, and he became really fearful of physical contact.
1: Charles was horrified when he would return to a state of relative lucidity and discover what he had done in the previous episode. And it particularly upset him on one occasion when he realized his children had heard him ranting.
0: Beginning as early as 1393, so really when this all really started to get serious, Isabeau basically started acting as regent whenever Charles was in one of his psychotic states and leading a regent's council. And Isabel really has been characterized in a number of ways throughout the years, many of them not flattering. Uh She has been described as power hungry, as an adulteress, as self-indulgent, as a shallow woman who only wanted to enjoy the luxuries of royal life. But she really was in a unique position of power. And more modern historians, as they've analyzed more of the, the actual documents of the time and not just things that were written kind of in the interim that maybe embellish the story, realized that she was really quite adept at managing diplomacy in the very stressful situation of having a husband who was not only experiencing psychosis, but was very dangerous as a consequence.
1: Yeah, I do want to take a moment to just clarify that the vast majority of people who have some kind of mental illness are are not dangerous. Correct. Yeah, we we have a couple of stories about royalty who were both mentally ill and dangerous, but like those things don't link together. They're not,
0: yeah. They're not necessarily hand in hand. These manifested that way. Uh, probably due to a number of factors, but yeah, that's never make that assumption.
1: Yeah, so Charles the Sixth reign stretched on, and it became more and more apparent that there was something really wrong. Other members of the French court began to scheme about how they could take advantage of this situation and seize power for themselves. Even when the king seemed to be lucid, he couldn't really think clearly and he relied on advice of those around him more and more to the point that he just started doing what other people told him to do. This led to a series of events that are just a complicated mess of drama.
0: Right. So John the Fearless, who had become the Duke of Burgundy after Philip the Bold had died, had been at odds with Louis Valois, the Duke of Orléans, who was, uh, of course, Charles VI's brother And Louis was also rumored to be having an affair with Queen Isabeau. So John the Fearless felt that if he didn't do something about Louis, who was close to both the king and Isabeau, that he, John, would have virtually no power.
1: The two dukes were openly hostile to one another. And in what John perceived as a power gap created by the king's instability, he plotted to have Louis assassinated in 1407. After a false note claiming that the king wanted to see him was sent to Louis, a crowd of more than a dozen attackers set upon the Duke of Orléans as he went to answer the request, and he was stabbed to death. But then, in a really surprising move,
0: Isabeau, who had been close with Louis, joined up with the Burgundians, Louis's attackers, and she and John the Fearless actually became close friends. In the meantime, Louis's followers continued to oppose the Burgundy power grab, and those uh, those resistors were led by Bernard VII, the Count of Armagnac.
1: Over the next several years, the Burgundians and the Armagnacs remained at odds, and the Armagnacs gradually pushed their rivals out of Paris in what's fittingly called the Armagnac-Burgundian Civil War. But in 1415, a new development, which was the invasion of France by Henry V, added yet another layer of stress and intrigue to the whole situation.
0: Henry and his army of 11,000 men had arrived in France in late summer 1415. After a five-week siege at Arfleur, Henry was victorious, but it was a costly win. They really did not expect Arfleur to be able to resist that long, and so his army was depleted by half. He had at that point intended to move north to Calais and then head back to England from there, but he was confronted at Agincourt by the French army, which was 20,000 men strong. And in one of history's most famous upsets, Henry's more agile troops were able to defeat the armor-encumbered French forces, despite that massive deficit in headcount.
1: Coming up, we will talk about how John the Fearless had been hoping to manipulate the situation to his advantage. But before we do, we'll have one more quick sponsor break.
2: Available now from iHeart, a new series presented by T-Mobile for Business, The Restless Ones. Join me, Jonathan Strickland, as I explore the coming technological revolution and the business leaders who stand right on the cutting edge. There are certain decision makers that are restless. They know there is a better way to get things done, and they are ready, curious, excited for the next technological innovation to unlock their vision of the future. These Restless Ones are in pursuit of bigger, better, stronger. They seek new partners, new strategies, new processes. They pursue innovative platforms and solutions to propel their teams, businesses, and industries forward. In each episode, we'll learn more from the Restless Ones themselves and dive deep into how the 5G revolution could enable their teams to thrive. The Restless Ones is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: So when we left off, we had been talking about how uh, Henry V had entered France, and initially John the Fearless had hoped to curry favor with Henry V by backing him, at least in a sneaky way. But his efforts fell apart, and the alliance that he hoped for never materialized. And after that, he turned to his enemies, the Armagnacs, for help. He wanted the Armagnacs and Burgundians to forge a truce and join forces to fight England. He hoped in this move to also get in the good graces of Charles VI's heir. That was the Dauphin, Charles VII. But during the discussions, which took place on the Montereau Bridge, John the Fearless was killed in what was likely a planned attack, although at the time it was carefully staged to look like a spontaneous disagreement that escalated and got out of hand.
1: As a quick aside, Charles VII was something of an unlikely Dauphin. Charles VI and Isabeau had a lot of kids, From 1386 to 1407, there had been 12 children, and four of them were boys. Their first child and first son, also named Charles, died at just three days old. Their second son, another Charles, died when he was nine. The two other sons, Louis and John, each died when they were 18. So Charles VII didn't become next in line to the throne until he was 14 when John died. And the death of
0: Burgundy in a meeting with Charles VII soured Isabeau's relationship with the crown prince. Up to that point, she had really favored the young man over her other children. And there were a lot of suspicions and rumors going around that uh, Charles VII was actually the child of her deceased close friend, Louis the Duke of Orleans. But after John the Fearless was killed, Isabeau disowned Charles VII and forged ahead with her own plan to make peace with England.
1: In May of 1420, the Treaty of Troyes was signed, and it was really Isabeau and the Duke of Burgundy, who was Philip III or Philip the Good at that point, who orchestrated the terms of this deal. In it, Charles and Isabeau's youngest daughter, Catherine of Valois, was promised as wife to Henry V of England. As part of the agreement, Henry V would become king of France as well as England when Charles VI died. This meant that Charles the seventh would be completely bypassed as the monarch and his sister Catherine would instead be queen. The treaty further provided that the descendants of Henry, king of England, should rule France going forward.
0: Yeah. This was sort of a, a weird thing where it's like, well, we're never going to win against them, but maybe we can work something out. And Charles the seventh really stinks. So let's do whatever we can to make this rough for him. Um, and that way, in making Catherine Henry V's wife, they were at least uh, ensuring that their bloodline was still part of the the ruling um, effort in France. And beyond being bypassed, all parties involved in this treaty denounced Charles VII and agreed that he and his followers should not be bargained with in any way. And that opposition to the terms of the treaty, which would undoubtedly come from Charles VII, should be eliminated.
1: But Henry V, who had been working his way through France claiming territory, continued to do just that after the treaty was signed. And throughout all this, Charles VI was basically out of the game. The people of France were not pleased, and the Treaty of Troyes really set off a couple of decades worth of unrest.
0: Yeah, they weren't really thrilled with this whole, oh, we're giving the country's rule away to England. Uh, They didn't care that it was a French a French wife that was involved in that. They just felt like they had been completely betrayed. And on October 21st of 1422, just shy of the 42nd anniversary of his crowning as King of France, Charles VI died. Henry V of England had actually already died just two months prior, so that meant that Henry V could not reign, but Henry's infant son that he had had with Catherine was proclaimed King of England and France.
1: Charles VI's son, Charles VII, was declared king of France by his supporters, though, and for a time, everything north of the Loire was under English rule, while the portions of France south of there were backing Charles VII as their king.
0: Yeah, it's a little more complex than that, but that becomes a whole podcast episode in and of itself. Um, But I want to talk a little bit, because particularly in those later years, Charles VI's madness doesn't get talked about a lot um, because they kind of just started to ignore him in some ways. In total, Charles VI had 44 documented episodes of madness through his life. So those, those instances where he had a psychotic break of some sort. Uh Initially, they were really well documented when this happened. But as his episodes of psychosis became more frequent and longer, there were fewer and fewer records kept about them.
1: Uh, as is so often the case, there's a lot of modern speculation about his diagnosis, and that speculation has included porphyria and encephalitis as well as schizophrenia. Charles VI was certainly not the first in his family to exhibit some kind of mental illness. His mother, Jeanne of Bourbon had also exhibited some instability, as had her brother and father. It's also possible that Porphyria from Charles VI's French bloodline was introduced into the English royal lineage with his daughter, Catherine. That's one of the theorized diagnoses attributed to King George III's madness.
0: Yeah, which we, uh, some listeners may know about if they ever saw the film The Madness of King George, which was, again, an episodic, instance where he had this psychotic break and some really weird things were going on with him and then he recovered and was fine again uh which it's uh that that brings up some interesting stuff that goes on later with victoria and albert's bloodline but we won't get into that now uh, <laughs> yeah it gets so convoluted and it's one of those things working on this it's like tricky where you're like i don't how far do we go in on either end of this uh, of charles the sixth's reign because it all affects it's all like this big moving morass and every gear that turns affects things down the road and is related to things that happened way before and it's tricky the hundred years war is a very complicated thing because there were so many schemes playing out by so many different people that intersected in interesting ways but it's not always easy to tease them apart because there was also a lot of fakery going on right of like, oh, that's an assassination, but really we made it look like we just had a disagreement that went bad. Things like that were happening all the time. It's tricky. And a lot of the history that was written, for example, in like the eighteen hundreds about all of this, when it was it had a surge in popularity, is really embellished. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things we've seen happen many, many times where someone will say something like, uh, you know, that's for sort of Isabeau's um characterization as being this you know licentious woman who took a lot of lovers which she allegedly did but we have no real evidence um but that's really where that sort of story picks up steam and and gets repeated over and over and and if you look back at the actual records of the time there isn't really much there are hints that she may have had paramours outside of her marriage but we don't there's no no solid evidence one way or the other so it's tricky I have completely uh, non-drama listener mail. Oh, good. It's about space. Nice. Uh, (laughs) It is from our listener, Roger, and he writes, Dear Tracy and Holly, thank you for your recent podcast on Dr. Hugh Dryden. I have worked for the... Uh, past 25 years at NIST, that's the National Institute of Standards and Technology, uh, as NBS, which is the National Bureau of Standards where Hugh Dryden worked, was renamed in the mid-1980s. This institution has over a century of scientific and engineering excellence, which is widely celebrated here. So I was surprised not to have heard of Dryden, though I knew of the NBS, wind tunnels, the BAT project, and other achievements related to aeronautics. There is an encyclopedic three-volume history of NBS NIST covering the first 100 years of its existence, but even this exhaustive reference contains only a few incidental references to this extraordinary man. I cannot offer an explanation for this oversight, though reading between the lines one might conjecture as to the reasons, but no matter the cause, I hope we might celebrate Dr. Dryden's accomplishments more fully. I have nominated Dr. Bill Berry, who was our guest on the show where we talked about him, as a speaker for the 2017-2018 NIST Colloquium Series. Uh, which is so cool. I love that idea. And um, Bill Berry is s- such a font of knowledge. Even as much as we talked on the show, he has so m- much more knowledge in his head and passion for the subject that uh, he would be a phenomenal speaker. And also Roger enclosed an assortment of postcards and pictures and pages from an account of early MBS history for our, amusement which is lovely it's such a cool packet uh it came in a very official looking envelope and i felt very fancy uh but it's really really great pictures about this uh pictures and and documents about this early stage of of an uh a branch of the united states government that maybe isn't always lauded in the ways it should be in terms of what it helped us achieve scientifically so thank you thank you thank you roger that was super fantastic to open this morning if you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcasts at com. You can find us across the spectrum of social media as Missed in History. Uh, that means on Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest and Tumblr and Facebook. Everywhere There we are, Missed in History. We also have a website, which is mistinhistory.com which covers all of the episodes of the show ever in archive form. And for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together, there are show notes uh, prior to a couple months ago. Those were their own separate pages for each episode, and now they're integrated, so all of the sources are right there with the, the podcast itself. Uh, if you would like to visit our parent site, that is HowStuffWorks.com, you can type in almost anything you're curious about in the search bar. And you will come up with a plethora of uh, content and information to explore and learn from. So please come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com.
2: For more on this and
1: thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. The future is closer than you think, and it all starts in the palm of your hand. You may have heard the news, 5G is coming. In this new iHeart series, This Time Tomorrow, presented by T-Mobile for Business, join me,
2: Oswald Oshin, and my co-host, Cara Price, as we walk you through the true revolution in mobility that will change the way we interact with the world around us. Join us and hear just how close we are getting to a more connected future This
1: Time Tomorrow is now available on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.